Ah, motherhood. One minute, your mom of the year. I love you, mommy. Then the next? Mm, not so much. From bath time to bullying, from potty training to puberty, parenting is full of challenges. But one thing is for certain, you are not alone. Welcome to Modern Mom Probs. I'm your host, author, mother, parenting expert, Tara Clark. Join me while we tackle today's Modern Mom Problems. Welcome back to another episode of Modern Mom Problems, where we try to solve the world's problems, but if we can't, at least we're having fun talking about them. And today's topic is truly a modern mom problem. We're going to be talking about growing up in public, coming of age in a digital world. I'm joined by Dr. Devorah Heitner. She is the author of Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World, and ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and CNN Opinion. She has a PhD in media technology and society from Northwestern University and has taught at DePaul and Northwestern. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so excited. As we mentioned before we even got into all of this, this is, in my opinion now, one of the biggest modern mom problems that we're trying to tackle. It is something that previous generations have never faced before. And so I feel like we could be talking about this for 10 hours at a clip, but since we only have about 30 minutes, (laughs) we're going to try to keep it as, as tight as we can. But it's something that I deal with on a daily basis. Even right before we jumped on the phone, I said that right now we're dealing with some issues in my son's group chat, which it's a really tricky, tricky topic. So before we jump into that, though, I want you to tell us a little bit about who you are and what inspired you to jump into this type of research and writing. So I'm Devorah Heitner. I have my own teenager, but even long before I had a teenager, I was getting interested in these questions of kids in the digital age. I have a PhD in media technology and society, and I used to teach a college class called Kids, Media, and Culture. And I would like take my students to interview third graders. So my 18, 19-year-old students were interviewing nine-year-olds about tech. And that was in the early days of smartphones. My students then had grown up on MySpace And Facebook was just coming onto campuses. So they were kind of the early social media users. And they had so much to say about the video game experiences, group chats, and social experiences they were having online. And I quickly realized that there were just a lot of misconceptions that adults have about the ways young people use tech. And that the more we can do to support parents, and then I also became a parent myself in those years, like the more we can do to support parents the more we can reduce the panic and help parents actually mentor and support their kids as opposed to just feeling bad that their kids have tech or feeling like something is wrong with them. Cause there's also just a lot of guilt, I think around screen time for, for parents. Yeah. A thousand percent. I love that you study this because full disclosure, I was a communication major in college. I have an MBA in media management. And I said to my husband, maybe about two months ago, I said, you know, I think I may look into getting a PhD in media and, and technology. So it's really interesting that you have gone <laughs> to the terminal degree of that. And so I think that's incredible. So I'm going to have to pick your brain offline about, about working towards that because media is something I love. I've loved that way before social media. Obviously, I wouldn't have been a communication major focusing in that if, if that weren't the case. I often joke and say it was because I watched too much television as a child. 
My dad says the same thing because I wrote my master's paper on Sesame Street. And he's like, you're the only person I know who started your master's paper when you were three. Yes. Oh, I love it. I love it. I had a great professor. He was actually a visiting professor over from UPenn. His name was George Gerbner, who was one of like the preeminent researchers of media back in the day. He had coined the concept of mean world syndrome. So the more news you watch, the more mean and dangerous and scary you think the world is. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant man. God bless him. He, he's passed now. But I just love media studies. But again, <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm totally going off on a, on a tangent here. So let's rein it back in and, and let's go back into this modern mom problem of growing up online and growing up in the digital world. So you have a new book out. It's called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in the Digital World. This is something that so many of us are struggling with. What is it like for these kids to be growing up in this very public world? Some of it is awesome because kids can achieve communication and find you know, have a huge platform if they're like young activists and, or they can connect with people of really esoteric interest that they share, they can find community. And some of it is super stressful. Some of it is super stressful because they are also very scrutinized. They realize that other people outside of their own context, outside of their own communities of friends and family can see them, can potentially judge them for things that they've shared A lot of kids have ouch kind of moments where they look at what they shared a few years ago and they cringe, right? So we might have those cringy experiences or they might look at what we've posted and cringe, but they also might see things that they put out there and cringe. Or they might have seen other kids get really piled on or even canceled for things they've posted. So kids are nervous about it. But I would also say there are some positives in terms of the ways kids can be empowered by social media platforms, communication platforms. And I think the digital natives myths is is kind of, is kind of a myth, right? The idea that they're just inherently good at it because they came of age with it, but it is useful looking at how much facility a lot of kids have. If you, you know, let a 10 year old edit your YouTube video or, you know, redo your LinkedIn pick, it might come out great because some of them are really quite good at using the tools, but they still need us to help them navigate the social implications of what the tools can do. Yes, they may have their, and I'm using this in quotes, 10,000 hours of practice to make them, like you said, talented at editing, whatever it happens to be, but they're lacking the social skills and the life experience to to show what what it means to do X, Y, and Z. Recently, I had someone on, on the podcast and we were talking about social skills and manners and how important that is to living a good connected life. And, you know, so many times nowadays, especially with like the tweens and teenagers, their faces are buried in their phone. And so they're sort of not getting the reps in, so to speak, on how to conduct themselves in a positive social way. Yeah, things like conflict resolution are huge. I mean, a lot of our kids just don't have the experience because they're not sort of knocking on doors or even dealing with exclusion or feeling left out. Like if we knocked on somebody's door and they couldn't come out to play, we had to kind of come up with a new perspective or a new idea or a new plan. But our kids haven't had as many experiences of even setting boundaries or saying not today or whatever, because they haven't as much access to their peers, especially with the pandemic and with just neighborhoods changing in ways that there's fewer communities where kids are just out, you know, playing on their own steam without adult support. 
So kids need to figure out how to navigate some of these transition points in relationships and conflicts and changes and boundaries with our support, but they need to figure it out. And it, and it, and it is really important. There's no getting around it. There's no kind of skipping that step. It's true. I remember how much anxiety it used to fill me with when I would go to a friend's house and ring on the doorbell and wait for someone like their, their mother or father to come answer the door and ask if they could come out and play. I still to this, to this day, like recall that of like taking up all the courage you have to, to ring on the doorbell and to stand there waiting. And that's not an experience that my son has. You know, he does not go to the to the neighbor's house and ring and say, hey, can little Johnny come out and play today? It's just simply not something that they're experiencing. And I think the plus side is that when we encounter, as we all will, just like mild rejections in life, whether it's someone not answering our email right away or someone saying no to a plan or, or a job that doesn't hire us, you know, when we, and life says no to all of us at different times. And often it's, you know, a great thing and it leaves room for something else, but we need practice with dealing with that. So it's not so devastating in the moment. Right. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about sharenting. That's a topic that you talk about in the book quite a bit. And do you want to explain what that is instead of my explaining it? And then Yeah. And I didn't coin the term to be fair, but it's a great term for parents sharing about their families and their kids and both, both narrative stories about our kids or videos or pictures of our kids. And I really look at in the book, a lot of the reasons we do it and how we can come up with better ways to do it that don't sacrifice our kids' privacy and don't undermine our relationships with our kids. So let's explore that a little bit. What are some of the reasons why? So a lot of us share because we just are so in love with our kids. They're so cute. We can't resist sharing. And also because there's some pressure to do it. Other people are doing it. And it can feel like, wait, if I don't share my kids as much as all my friends are doing it, does that mean I don't love them? Is, is this, you know, there's a little bit of, even if it's not, it's like a sort of a soft competition or just kind of keeping up with what feels like a visible practice. And then we want to show our families looking great. So there can be some pressure on vacation or other things like maybe everybody's fighting in the backseat of the car, but we're going to take that one really great picture on the mountaintop where everyone looks happy and where, you know, it looks fun and beautiful because that's what other people are posting. So there's, there can be some pressure there. And I think it's also fair to say, especially for us moms, that a lot of the work we do in raising our kids is like really invisible and unappreciated in society. And maybe even in our own families, we might not get the thank yous and appreciation and adulation that we deserve. And so if we're posting our kids ice hockey win, we're also kind of posting our driving them to ice hockey at 6am, right? Like there's a lot of parental labor. And again, a lot of it is maternal. I'm not throwing dads under the bus here. Dads do a lot too, but we are doing a lot to keep our families going. And I do think we want to be recognized and seen. And then the other thing is we don't have as much community with our friends because we're raising kids. And so sharing about our families can feel like a way to keep up with friends, to feel visible, to feel less lonely. And those are some things I think we can really interrogate and see, does it even work? Like for, if I'm feeling lonely, I might feel a lot less lonesome if I go for a walk with one of my friends and actually talk with them about maybe the struggles I'm experiencing with my family or my work or anything else, or hear about what's going on with them versus posting, which is such a one-way experience. Even when we get comments, it's still not the same kind of community as a good phone call or in-person catch-up. And so I think that's really important to recognize that even texting and hearing back from one friend and having that reciprocity is so different than posting on social 
And scrolling on social can often leave us feel kind of empty and lonesome. So it's just good to recognize like, okay, if I'm posting out of loneliness, maybe there's something else I can do. If I'm posting because I want to be appreciated, maybe I can let my family know like, hey, I'm so proud of you for getting up to, you know, go to this ice hockey practice. I kind of want some recognition too. Can you, you know, like some, in my family, we really directly, my husband and I remember to ask for the recognition we want. We learned this trick from another friend of ours, a couple who run a business together and they taught us to say, you're going to love it when I, and I'll be like, you're going to love it when I already bought all the cat food this month or whatever. And my husband's like, I love it. So that's a, a way for us to ask for that recognition. I love it. <laughs> right. You're going to love food. it when I checked in with, with our son's advisor for high school and like made sure we have everything we need for the first day or all the things, right? There's so many things we all do. And maybe instead of posting about it, I can just get that recognition from the people who really need to recognize it. Maybe my whatever 800 followers don't need. <laughs> and, and then we can also not default to letting meta like Instagram or something be our family album. Like maybe we want to have a family album that's a little more private. Maybe there's only a smaller number of people that really want to see those regular photos of our kids. And really importantly, if we don't ask our kids permission, they often feel vulnerable and embarrassed by what we share. So we want to make sure we're not undermining our relationships with them. And by teaching them to ask before they share, we're also modeling that that's what they should do with friends. They should get consent before they share. Let's explore that a little bit. First, I want to explore risking undermining your relationship with your kids. And then I want to talk about mentoring over monitoring. Yeah, I mean, our, our kids should be free to be themselves at home. And, and when they're with us, they should be free to sort of let down their hair literally and just be and be silly and be how they are. And if they know those photos are going to be shared with, you know, their third grade or sixth grade classmates or whatever, that's going to be really inhibiting for them. And, and things that we don't even think of as embarrassing you know, like something that they do or say that we think is really cute or a mispronunciation that they have or a like question that they ask that we thought was adorable. Like they might not think that sharing that was so adorable. So again, maybe save it to tell just like one grandparent or your good friend. I'm not saying we have to keep those gems completely to ourselves because I think the world is richer for those stories or even save it for when your child is older and they can think it's funny and cute versus right now when they think it kind of undermines their, you know, fourth grade street cred. And fourth grade street cred is very important. Yeah, you don't want your mom posting the picture of you when you just woke up and your hair is messy, even if you think it's adorable. Maybe keep that in the family or just don't even take the picture and code it in your brain. It turns out we remember things better sometimes than when we don't photograph them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very careful about my son's privacy for, for those reasons. And I always have been in the work that I do for that reason. It's like his relationship our relationship together to me is the single most important thing in my life. And so I would hate to undermine it for the risk of being performative, which I think a lot of this often happens because people are being performative. And it's, again, when I say like someone's just posting for attention, when I post, I'm posting for attention too. I want you to like it. And it's hard for me to not post my kid. I'm not allowed to. And he knows I've been writing a book about privacy for the last four years. So I'd be so busted I get serious 14 year old side eye if I post a picture, but, or more, I mean, it would really be a problem actually. Cause when, once a kid has said, no, you just really can't do it. Like that's it. You have just like, if your spouse or partner or best friend said, no, you absolutely have to, to recognize and, and honor 
consent and and be really clear about those boundaries because again you want you would want your kid to recognize if those boundaries were being violated by someone else and so if you muddy that water you're making it very confusing for them to understand boundaries and consent so we really don't want to do that but it's hard for me to resist too because other people are posting their teenagers apparently some teenagers do allow for this and I'm like darn that'd be some great content oh well <laughs> I'm just going to like file that in the back of my mind. Like you said, when you take a mental photograph and you're like, I'm just going to keep that one there. Actually, my son hates smiling for pictures. It's his thing. He's been like that since he was a small child. And it's almost like a running joke that he takes a photo as if it were like 1875, where, you know, they always just have like a blank stare on their face. That's my son's photos. That it's okay. That's just, <laughs> that's just how we take that's photos. That's that's just how we roll. Like we could be laughing and smiling and the second the camera comes out, he goes straight face. And so that's always how the pictures are, but that makes him him, you know? And so I, I, that's something that I love about him. It makes him unique. This episode is brought to you by Modern Mom Style Box. Upgrade your wardrobe and enjoy unlimited styles for just $60 a month. Modern Mom Style Box is the first rental clothing subscription designed exclusively for moms and moms-to-be. Get started today with a free trial. Use promo code PTO. I want to talk a little bit about consent. And in your book, you talk a lot about that. And you talk a lot about, I mean, really... There's so many different topics that you can go. You talk about sexting in your book. You talk about nude photos. You talk about a lot. Do you want to explain a little bit about? I really go there because I think when we have, when we honor our kids' privacy at home by not sharing a picture of them that they've asked us not to share, we're also teaching them that if someone later violates their consent by sharing a nude, and I'm not even talking about, you know, like an adult or a pedophile, I'm just talking about like a peer, like maybe someone they liked or were in a romantic relationship with and they sent it to willingly. And then it things go wrong and it gets shared. It's re- which is which is a huge problem. Kids need to know that that's a violation, that they're that it's not okay for someone to share something without permission. And they need to know in case someone ever sends them something, like say a picture is just going around school and it ends up on your kid's phone. They need to know not to participate in further violating that person's privacy by passing it on. In addition to all the legal and, and reasons, there's also ethical reasons of like, hey, that person's privacy was violated. We don't add to their violation by sharing that. Just like if someone's got their backpack stolen, we don't, you know, go around playing keep away on the playground, you know, we would give it back to the person if we could, right? You don't want to go around sort of adding to someone's violation. And sometimes kids will say, well, I didn't know the person. It doesn't feel that personal to me. And I get that, but you're still violating someone's trust and privacy if you're sharing something that you know, probably they didn't consent to, like, like a nude that goes around school, that kind of thing. It's an important conversation because that is a conversation that I feel gets missed a lot in this screen time social media discussion, I remember a few years ago in our town's middle school, that exact situation happened. A girl had sent some photos to a friend and it just ballooned from there. And they had to pull in the police and the the police came to speak to the middle schoolers and it was a a whole thing. And hopefully they learned from that. Uh, Hopefully they've curtailed that behavior, but it's scary. And, and I'm sure so quickly, you know, 
a conversation between two people then became a conversation between 200 people. So many of us don't think before we forward or share. And I mean, another example is when kids share things that are problematic in other ways in communities, like, you know, a hateful post, a homophobic or racist post. And I think it's really important that we don't participate in the harm that a post like that causes by actually amplifying it more and sharing it more. And I think sometimes we share because we don't know what to do. Like kids will share a nude that goes around because they're like, it's like a hot potato. They're like, I don't know what to do. But it's really important to just prepare kids for that moment because it's probably going to happen. Even if your kid will never send like an underpants picture and no clothes picture and you hope that they won't. And most kids don't still the majority of kids don't, but most kids will be exposed to it at some point by someone else doing it. So we need to tell our kids, Hey, if like some weird thing goes around, like a naked picture of someone, you're probably going to feel really uncomfortable if you get it, erase it. If you know who sent it, you can let the person know like, Hey, please don't send stuff like that to me again. You could even block that person. If you you know, feel like they're someone who's likely to keep sending you problematic stuff. But it, it's really important that we don't participate in that. And and also, we don't get out our cameras when things are weird. I mean, another example I share in the book is, you know, we like walking in on somebody in the school bathroom making out or, or doing sexual things and, and videoing it. It's like, no, no, no. If you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. That is kind of a boundary violation. Like school isn't really a place to, you know, get busy like that. Okay, walk out of the bathroom, go find another place to use the bathroom, but do not get out your phone. Right. But I think what we do is we get out our phones because it feels like, oh my gosh, this is outrageous or what a great story this will be. Or it just distances us from how uncomfortable we feel. Yes. And I think, you know, there's always that pressure for going viral, right? Like, oh, well, I'm going to get this great piece of news and everyone's going to like me because I'm going to send this and and I'm going to be the hero. And it really is just the opposite. Teens are very sensitive to rewards and a little bit less sensitive to long-term consequences in terms of their brains. And so that reward of like, everyone's going to like it. I'm going to get a lot of followers, a huge conversation we need to have with kids and tweens and teens, especially if they start talking about people like on YouTube or TikTok with a big following is to start asking questions about what it means to have so many followers. I mean, you you have a lot of followers, so you can think about this. Like your kid probably could ask you like, what's it like to have followers like this on Instagram? But for me, you know, like I don't have a huge number of followers, but there's definitely people who follow me who I don't personally know, right? And talking to kids about, well, what would you do? Like say your kid, you know, say says, oh, this YouTuber has 10,000 followers. I want 10,000 followers. Well, okay, what would you say to 10,000 people? Like what would be important? Like what would be cool about having that platform? Can you imagine anything that could be stressful about having 10,000 followers, right? And just instead of like what a lot of parents might do is be like, no, that's not real. Or you don't want to be an influencer. Like just tell them they're wrong. I think I would just try to get curious about what your kid thinks about influence and what that means to them, what why they want that. Certainly, if your kid is building an audience, I think there are other steps we can take to keep them safe and make sure that they don't kind of build an audience that then puts a lot of pressure on them. And when we talk to kids who I did interview some people for the book who were kid influencers and that and and child celebrities, and there is a lot of pressure that comes with that. But even just hearing about that desire, like I want to be a streamer, a YouTuber, TikTok person, whatever, just kind of leaning into like, well, what does that mean to you? And then also helping kids understand that with followers, that's a quantifiable number and you'll never have enough, right? It never ends. Like you have 80, you want 800. There's always going to be someone with 8,000. Then you'll see that there's someone with 80,000. Like you never will have enough in if that's what you're looking to, to make you happy. And so we need for kids to understand that the most important relationships are reciprocal. One friend 
is worth more than a zillion followers that just pressed a button to follow you. Preach. 1,000% yes. As someone who does this for a living, I could tell you that is 1,000% correct. Yeah. I mean, what a friend you show up for, they show up for you. You sit with them at lunch. You're happy to see them. And the mental health research tells us our kids just need one friend, but they all go around thinking they need a million friends because they see some kids out there with a million followers, but those relationships aren't reciprocal. And it's really important to understand those are parasocial relationships. And frankly, kids' identities are in enough flux and change that it can be a lot of pressure to have a lot of followers. I I would never say to a kid who really had something they wanted to do or say in this world that they shouldn't put it out there if they have parental support. But I guess what I would say to that family is that's a lot of support that they're going to need. And you keep having to remind kids that they're free to quit at any time. They're always free to stop. And even then, some of the former kid influencers I've talked to still ended up feeling like it was a lot of pressure. So I guess I wouldn't totally throw a wet, wet, you know, wet blanket on it, but I, I wouldn't go out of my way to encourage my kid to be an influencer at this point either. I do think that even adult influencers struggle with stress around it. But I think for kids, I think some of the downsides may for a lot of kids outweigh the upsides. That said, I know there are kids out there doing really cool things and I admire them too. And I'm not, I'm not here to say what anyone should do, but I just think it's, I would tread cautiously on that front. Yes, definitely. Just actually before our call, I was on someone else's podcast talking about content creator burnout. And we spoke a whole hour, maybe an hour and 10 minutes about that entire concept because it is very real. There is a lot of pressure to perform, especially for the younger adolescents that are involved in this. I would venture to say that in my son's fourth grade class, they just had a yearbook because they graduated going fourth grade into fifth grade, which is our our middle school in our town. Probably 40% of the children said that they want to be a YouTuber when they grow up. And that's an incredibly high percentage of kids wanting to be content creators. It is. It's huge. And of course it makes sense because it looks like you just roll out of bed and you're just being yourself and you're getting paid to be yourself, but you're being paid to be a performative version of yourself. And even regular people on social media, you know, are also performing. And that's what I remind kids, like you're looking at the party, but if it was really a great party and someone's really meeting their best friend or the person they're going to tour the world in the bandwidth or write a zine with, they're probably so busy having the conversation. They're not posting the minute they're posting. They're probably bored by the trips and just like, how can I make this party look cool? How can I make my life look more interesting? So I just think it's so important for kids to remember that all social media is a performance, but also even their like super authentic, you know, influencer, YouTube celebrity person or TikTok person, you know, I mean, it's all performative. Like even the people whose performance is about not being a performance, like your Casey Davis, who I love, you know, struggle care. Like I love her, you know, and I just like, she's all like, let it all hang out, but that's still a choice. Like it's still, it is still a choice. Even, even when you're choosing to be vulnerable, that's still a choice. It's, it's, it's definitely a choice within your content to do that. Cause at the, at the end of the day, it's still content. Absolutely. So how can parents help make it less stressful? So a huge thing we can remind kids, and this is good advice, I think, for your son's group chat, is remember to be, you can always reduce the scope. So say you're in a group chat with like everyone in fifth grade and someone says something you don't like, you have a bunch of options. You can leave the group chat completely, take a break, be like, and especially at that age, you can be like, my parents made me go outside. I got to leave for a while or we're going on vacation. I got to unplug. We're going camping, you know, take a break. Second thing you can do is reach out to the individuals. Like say one kid is saying some not nice things about a teacher and it makes you uncomfortable. Maybe they're crossing a line. They're not just saying that 
that teacher so hard. That's not my favorite teacher, you know, but like crossing the line, talking about that person's body or something. You can go directly to that person without confronting them in front of everyone, because we know that when you confront people in front of everyone, they often double down. They're going to, you know, that's going to escalate the conflict. But if you go to them privately and be like, you know, I don't, I think that's kind of not okay what you're saying, they might be able to kind of backtrack from it. A third option is say a kid is being mean to another kid who's in the text and you feel like you want to support that person. Like maybe somebody's in a text with me and they're saying like, Devorah's, you know, new glasses are so ugly. I don't like Devorah's glasses. Why doesn't she get contacts? What's wrong? You could go to me and be like, hey, Devorah, I, you know, I thought when, you know, Melanie was talking about your glasses, that wasn't very nice. I think they're cute. Don't listen to her. You know, and that would be an, a third option. And so I think we just want to remind kids they have other options other than piling on, liking the comment, right? Or just watching and feeling really uncomfortable. You can leave the chat, you can go to the person, you can go to someone else and express solidarity. What you don't probably want to do is say, I'm not in the screen in there, like say, I'm not in the chat and people are talking about my glasses. That's probably not at the level where you need to let me know or tattletale to an adult, but especially you don't need to let me know. You don't need to screenshot it and be like, hey, Peter said your glasses are dumb. Right. And a lot of kids want to do that because they think that's what loyalty is. Now, if somebody's saying they're going to kick my butt after school, I'd bring that to a teacher. I, you know, that's, that's a different level of threat. But if they're just kind of talking smack about me, like letting me know is actually not the kind thing to do, but a lot of kids kind of think it is, or they want to stir the pot. They think they're being kind, but they also want to stir the pot. Yes, that's definitely a part of it. So what can we as parents do? Should we be monitoring the group chats? Should we be monitoring their social media usage? Sometimes I feel like we feel helpless in this. What should parents be doing? Parents should be mentoring kids actively, talking about the theoreticals before they even come up. Say your kid doesn't even have a phone yet, talking about, hey, when you get a phone and you're on group text, sometimes kids will be like, let's have a whole new group text and start it again without Tara, you know, or what would you do if somebody shared a meme that you thought was really gross? right? And just like go over some of the options because kids will go with the most draconian options. Like someone will say something mild and then they'll like block them. And you don't want to be like blocking and unblocking your friends constantly. And that's like a very elementary school, middle school, same thing. Like, you know, a lot of screenshots, stuff like that. So just go over some of the stuff that kids do and also try to start with a reduced scope. I would definitely, if I had a first phone user in the single or early double digit ages, you know, you're nine, 10, 11, 12, I would start with just texting. I would not go to social media and I would start with just texting only people you know. Try not to get into the big group texts ideally. Keeping the scope smaller can really help and making sure that they only have access to their phone at certain times that are expected and planned and that their expectations, they know that if they go to a family dinner or something that they're not going to have it out. So that expectation is huge. And knowing that they can have boundaries with their friends, like, hey, if your friends come over, I want you to both put it away. I want you to play outside or even play a shared video game or watch a movie together. But I don't want you like both sitting next to each other on your phones, just ignoring each other. (laughs) Right. It's like it goes back to parallel play when they were like three year olds, they would sit and do parallel play. And then as like 13 year olds, they do parallel play, but on their phone. Sounds good. Are there any apps that you recommend? I think, you know, apps you mean to monitor kids. I really resist those apps. And here's why. I think they can give parents an illusion that they know what's going on when they don't. That said, the apps that can just turn off things on your phone, like screen time on the Apple or, you know, just shutting down your router even manually at night. So your kid, like if they do go sneak their device, it's a brick because there's no internet. I think that can be helpful, especially in the early years to just make good habits and make sure your kid isn't 
you know, on their device all night. Kind of depends. Like if you have a big house and a lot of kids, that might be more helpful. I have one kid, so I can just take in a small space, so I can just take his devices at night. I know what's going on. I'm like large and in charge. But if I had five kids in a huge house or even like two or three, I think you know, turning off the Wi-Fi might be easier than trying to start collecting everyone's devices. And by the way, remember those school devices too, because kids will literally, you'll kick them off their phone and they'll go get on that school Chromebook and like do all the same stuff. So, you know, I do think it's important that we make sure our kids sleep and they unplug at night, but we also need them to build their own positive habits. You know, by, by high school, ideally we're not like policing every, every device, but I certainly wouldn't start out with just 24 seven access. And, and again, I think part of the problem too is reading your kids' texts, like with something like, you know, Bark or all these other ones, is they, they really can make you feel like you know what's going on, but you don't really have context. What I want, and, and it can drive kids further underground and make kids more focused on hiding from you versus focused on their own emotional health and getting from you support when they need it. So I think rather than that software, I would say if you have a new phone user, check in with them, maybe sit down with them and look at stuff together. I definitely wouldn't go with a covert monitoring situation because then what do you do if you see something? You're kind of parenting yourself in a parenting corner. So if you are going to monitor, I would definitely disclose to your kid that you're doing it. Let them know what you're looking for. You don't want to gotcha your kid with some rule that they didn't even know existed. Instead, you could say, well, I expect you to not use really bad language in the group text, you know, or I expect that if someone says something really mean, you'll come to me. And those are, those are really important you know, parameters to suggest and, and expecting kids to be exactly like they are with you when they're with their friends is not realistic. They're going to have a different game face with the friends. And sometimes some of the ways they talk with the friends are just about showing off for the friends. So we need to be really clear about that. And when we worry about what kids post, a lot of that worry, I think we need to focus on character and not just consequences and getting caught. And I, I write about this a lot in growing up in public that a lot of times parents will threaten their kids with like, oh, you won't get into Princeton or Stanford if you post that. Well, you might get into Princeton or Stanford, but maybe I just don't want you to be that kind of person. So I think it's more important that we focus on not causing harm with what we post, not liking a post that causes harm or throws a group of people under the bus or denigrates anyone. It's really important that we focus on not not amplifying or creating things that harm people and not just don't get caught. When we say, if you post that, you won't get into Princeton, kind of saying don't get caught, which is not really the message. It should be about don't be part of something that's hurting other people. If in doubt, if a group text is going down a really toxic road, get out of there. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic device. Devorah, where can everyone find your book? Tell us where we could all find you. You can find it on all the places you get books, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and your local independent bookstore, bookshop.org any of those places. I, of course, think everyone should try to support their local bookstore if you have one. And read it with your friends. There's a free discussion guide on my website. So you can read it with your parent friends. Or if you're a teacher, an educator, you can. there's an educator discussion guide as well. I really want people diving into this stuff so they can have really good conversations with the kids in their lives about, hey, what's this really like for you? What's it like when a friend suddenly has a million followers or what's it like when a friend gets on a new app and that's all they want to talk about? Or what's it like seeing everybody's Snapchat maps or, you know, when a TikTok trend goes super viral in your community? I want to hear from kids about this stuff. And I want you to be able to really get kids in your, in your life to open up to you. And I think by opening the dialogue and just being curious, as opposed to judgmental, you'll get a lot of really good stories from kids and hearing from them is going to really help you see how you can support them better. 
beautiful advice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's so great to talk with you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Modern Mom Probs. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive in today's problem with me, your host, Tara Clark. Join me next time when I'll be interviewing another great guest and tackling another modern mom problem. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and a rating. As always, you could head over to Modern Mom Probs on Instagram and give me a follow or check out my book, Modern Mom Probs, A Survival Guide for 21st Century Mothers, available online wherever books are sold. Well, that's it for today. See you next time, folks.